You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Over the past number of years, the issue of domestic violence has finally finally received uh, a lot wider coverage in the media, largely a result of the um, incredible efforts of advocates such as Rosie Batty, but also from a greater focus on the issue by governments at both the state and the federal level. And uh, while more media reporting on this nationwide problem is certainly a good thing, how accurate is such reporting and how does it reinforce or challenge particular attitudes towards women that are out there in the community? And I say women with the knowledge that not all, but the vast majority of domestic abuse is inflicted uh, by men against women. A recent report by Our Watch and Australia's National Research Organisation for Women's Safety, or ANROS, found that there remain problems with the way in which violence against women is covered in the media. As just one example, the research found that 15% of such reports engaged in some form of victim blaming. Tarang Chawla is an ambassador with Our Watch, an organisation that strives to affect change in the culture and behaviours that lead to violence against women and children, and is also someone who has experienced the devastation of domestic violence firsthand. His sister Nikita was um, tragically killed earlier last year. He recently penned an article in The Age that spoke to some of these issues, and I'm very uh, happy to have him join us today uh, on the line. Tarang, thanks so much for being there. Good to be with you, Dylan. And so this report is um, quite complex and far-reaching, and I've just alluded to one of its findings, but what sort of immediately stood out for you when, when you read it? One of the top one findings, Dylan, for me when I read the report, and just for your audience's sake, it's quite a dense report to read. Uh, obviously, it's been commissioned through the University of Melbourne and then through our Watch and Anrose. Uh, but some of the, the top line findings are the clear link between your reporting and attitudes and beliefs in relation to violence against women. So audiences' emotional responses uh, in terms of the attribution of responsibility when it comes to uh, an act of domestic violence or family violence perpetrated by uh, a male against a female victim or, or a child's victim, uh, the way that the media uh, covers that story will then affect the audience's emotional responses and who they believe is is ultimately responsible for that act of violence. And so uh, the vast majority of reporting on violence against women was incident-based, so it would look at tragic individual instances and not explore the issue in greater depth. So um, it's sort of this question, is it more important to know how a woman was killed than why? So around 61% is incident-based, uh, just under 21% is thematic, and, uh, and 18% is a combination of the two. So that rather than looking at the broader cultural, social, political issue around gender inequality, driver um, and a manifestation of, of male violence against women, it focuses solely on the instant case and then finds reasons um, to attribute responsibility for that violence. Um, and what we want to do um, through watching this Anrose study is look at what's driving the, the violence and then work in greater ways to prevent that violence from occurring and I essentially preventive uh, medicine stop it before it starts. And it's, that, that sort of stood out for me as well, and it, um, it really brings to attention the fact that such reporting, uh, while some might be, I guess, more overtly um, engaged in victim blaming and that sort of thing, but these things can be quite subtle in the, the selection of sources that journalists might draw upon um, in reporting in uh, an incident of, um, of domestic abuse or violence against women and children. Um, the report found that the vast majority of, uh, of articles were referencing people from the police force and criminal justice system and not necessarily those with first-hand experience or advocates who might be able to speak to that sort of um, broader problem, I guess. Absolutely, Dylan. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, reporting which tends to be 
uh, what you'd term, I suppose, murder-centric. So when a homicide occurs, as was the case in our family when Nikki was murdered, uh, obviously that made uh, national news coverage. The same occurred with Tara Brown last year. The same occurred with the triple homicide in uh, Adelaide two weeks ago. Um, these sorts of uh, most serious manifestations of gender inequality where someone's life or multiple lives are lost, they tend to make national news coverage and there's positive direction in terms of the way those issues are being framed. Uh, but what we find, uh, regardless of the way that that's happening, is that other types of violence, particularly emotional or threats or sexual harassment, are largely invisible in the, the national media. They'll occasionally make the news in local media, community-based media, but in terms of the national uh, media, that doesn't tend to factor in. And then one of the other things that's, uh, that's deeply concerning that, that's um, come out of this Andrew study is that the myths and rep misrepresentations still find their way into reporting. So around 15% thereabouts of incident-based reporting includes victim blaming, and this is despite the work of many, many advocates and ambassadors and the sort of national conversation that we're having at the moment. So they use such things as she was drinking, uh, flirting, or went home with the perpetrator, she was out alone, um, they were, in, they were in, engaged in an argument, or worse still, that she didn't report previous incidents or didn't leave. Um, so around 15% of incident-based reporting offers excuses for the perpetrator, so it seeks to excuse the sort of almost illegal liability for his actions by saying he was using drugs, he was drinking, um, or in worst cases, it's framed as an issue around anger, so he snapped, he lost control, it's very out of character, it's not like how he normally would be. Um, and obviously each case should be determined on the, the facts of the instant case. But uh, those sorts of representations in the media, which aren't unfortunately based on facts, they're just sort of, uh, you know, uh, long-held assumptions about perpetrator behaviour, are what, uh, are what the audience responds to and ultimately what's damaging in terms of our understanding around the drivers of violence against women and working to prevent it. Um, and so that's why, as an Our Watch ambassador, I'm really pleased that the uh, second annual Our Watch awards are being held this year. So what they are, Dylan, is a, uh, they essentially recognise exemplary reporting to end violence against women. So it's an incentive for journalists to lead this national conversation around the important social issue. So the idea is to produce high-quality, socially ethical journalism that contributes to that deeper understanding of violence, including the drivers and prevention. And what we've seen is that while the issue, as you mentioned, has, uh, has dominated the headlines as never before. We're now in this sort of new era where we're seeing uh, that really good journalism around this issue is informing the public and is causing people to think deeper about the issue and change their attitudes and actually work um, within their local communities through the changing of attitudes to, uh, to prevent violence against women. And, and the Our Watch Awards are a really um, great initiative in, I suppose, putting up a, a, an example of what is appropriate and responsible reporting around this issue. And I wonder, with uh, given that the media reporting has, I suppose, been um, lacking and, and flawed around this issue, and, and we use that term broadly, of course. Um, there's a lot of different people writing articles, but the, uh, the substance of the report that's put out by Our Watch and Anne Rose really points to some pretty significant um, issues in the way that these... Uh, domestic violence and violence against women is typically framed. But I wonder if, if you think that is reflective of um, a broader cultural attitude that maybe still doesn't take violence against women that seriously, or is it the media, I guess, 
um, leading that discussion and not being forward and, and responsible enough to uh, to present these issues and, and facts to people in a responsible enough way? I think they feed off each other, Dylan. I think the, the media has uh, a responsibility to report ethically, to report sensibly, to report fairly, and to report in such a way that contributes to a deeper understanding of the issue. These are the sorts of attitudes uh, around gender inequality that have, uh, you know, have been going on for generations, and they will take time to, to change and to shift. Um, but what we see is that the choice of language that journalists use in their in their reporting is what ultimately contributes to that audience response, and the audience tends to feed off how that issue is reported to them and then frame their own thinking around it. So the choice of language um, is, it can sometimes be insensitive. For example, 17.2% of newspaper and online headlines were deemed sensationalist. So they'll look to look for ways to uh, to justify the the murderer's actions, or they'll um, or they'll use terms like you know uh, axe slashing leads to death of two or three you know two women and yeah, that was and, a particularly um, incredible example. Yeah, exactly, and that kind of thing does happen around the country still. So while we we are in a stage where the conversation is changing and we're having a national conversation around it. The great thing that I think, uh, being personally affected about the Watch Awards, is that it provides journalists with that incentive to understand how their reporting frames the issue more broadly and actually work to make a difference to an issue that they're not necessarily personally affected by, but that they have the, the exposure and the power to make a great difference to. And um, if you've just tuned in, uh, you're listening to The Grapevine and we're speaking with Tarang Chawla, who's an ambassador with Our Watch, all about media reporting of violence against women and children. And we've uh, spoken about um, broadly the issue of domestic violence uh, on this program previously and we've made a real effort to give prominence to to women who are working in that area who might have been perhaps personally affected by it. Um, We spoke to, for example, Sarah Ferguson who put together that incredible um, two-part documentary, Hitting Home. But you've sort of played a role in um, really calling out men's entitlement, male entitlement, which kind of has a, an underpinning to this sort of violent, violent behaviour. And I wonder, from your perspective, what is the, the role and responsibility of men in uh, calling out um, well, domestic violence or, or negative attitudes towards women and trying to lead that cultural change? I think as men, Dylan, we sort of, we're not aware necessarily of our own privilege and our own entitlement. It's something that, uh, I, I know myself being from an Indian background where, uh, society can be equally patriarchal to, to the way ours is here in, in, um, you know, in Australia. There, there is that sort of, uh, entitlement that you're, that you're raised with as a male that you sort of internalize. I think that um, having a deeper understanding of that and then challenging it through everyday behaviour. So if someone says something inappropriate uh, or, or, or sexist or you know demeaning to women, call them out on that. You know, and um, it can it can sometimes be a, a bold stance to take. But actually, the, the more that this conversation continues, the more that we'll see positive change. And the overwhelming majority of, of domestic violence. Uh, is committed against women and children by male perpetrators. And so as the people largely responsible or as the gender largely responsible for uh, that violence, we all play a role in calling out that behaviour. Uh, and it can be as simple as just leading by example. Um, and, and um, yeah, it's as simple as leading by example and, um, and trying to set a good example for those around you. 
And um, earlier this year, the Victorian government concluded its Royal Commission into Family Violence. It um, released its final uh, report in March. Um, you understand made a submission, a submission to that commission. Were you satisfied with its findings? Absolutely. I think uh, in terms of in terms of the state based response to family violence, Victoria is pretty much leading the way uh, in terms of its response to the issue. Uh, the the premier intends to, uh, or has pledged to uh, to follow through with all 227 of the recommendations. So this is the kind of thing that's never occurred in Australia before, um, and Victoria is leading the way. As I sort of alluded to earlier, Dylan, this is an issue that has um, started to make the national uh, headlines. You know, through the work of Rosie Batty and through the tragic uh, death of Luke, and then, and then, you know, the more that we learn about the issue, the more that we see that there are human stories behind the statistics. The more each one of us is impacted by it, uh, and and you know, things are changing. But progress is obviously slow. It will take time. Um, but uh, but it, I'm, I'm very pleased that um, as far as the state-based response is concerned, that we are seeking to lead the way in Victoria. And um, and you're part of a, a really strong movement for cultural change that I'm sure, um, given your sort of uh, personal circumstances, you couldn't have imagined being part of 18 months ago. When there is so much more to be done, where do you see hope? Where do you see those kind of improvements and, and I, I guess, better understandings of the issue being made? I suppose I just draw on uh, the, the sort of courage and strength of, of my sister, Dylan, in terms of my own personal experiences. She was a, a, a genuine trooper and um, li- lived in an abusive relationship for a very long time, which ultimately um, led to her tragic, uh, her passing. And uh, and so I, I think that I draw on I draw on that, and I draw on the fact that um, every time I read the media reporting. I, uh, I understand that there's a human element behind that and I seek to try to um, meet with, you know, victims' families and other survivors and other advocates of survivors to share those sorts of stories because I have this platform available to me. Um, and one of the things, you know, to touch on the media representations of violence against women is that we've seen, Dylan, in Australia with, um, with the same team of experts behind this report um, led some report which informed the creation of Mindframe, which engaged industry to promote best practice reporting of suicide and mental health. And so according to the World Health Organisation, the Australian media now lead the way in the sensitive and ethical reporting of those issues. Now, that's the sort of thing that's occurred in around a decade. Uh, and so we've only really started. This is the second uh, annual Our Watch Awards. And so obviously it will take time. But sort of I draw on the fact that um, the evidence points in other areas to the fact that uh, sensitive and ethical and responsible media reporting will influence community attitudes and will lead to greater awareness uh, and prevention around uh, other issues. And so I find sort of hope in the idea that if we continue this work, that it will result uh, in the saving of lives of women and children and a reduction in instances of male perpetrated violence. Well, it's such important work to do, and um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today on Triple R Terrain. Absolutely. Thank you, Dylan.
And um, I should mention, if, if you know someone or uh, are experiencing sexual assault, domestic or family violence, you, of course, are encouraged to call 1800RESPECT on 1800-737-732 or you can visit 1800respect.org.au. And, of course, in an emergency, the best option is always to call triple zero. And we were just then speaking with Tarang Chola, who's a survivor advocate and an ambassador with Our Watch, talking all about media reporting of violence against women. As we approach the federal election on July 2, and um, having already endured weeks of campaigning, we've got a pretty good idea of the main agendas and policies of each of the major parties. Just how they came to adopt particular policies and prioritise them, however, is a little bit less clear. A significant part of this process is influenced by lobby groups who collectively spend billions of dollars to gain the attention of key political figures and parties, and of course, us. George Rennie is a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, and he's looked into lobbying activities in depth. He's also recently published an article in The Conversation unpacking the ins and outs of political lobbying and George joins us today in the Triple R studio. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be here, Dylan. And so I want to start with perhaps the most um, basic question. What is a lobbyist? Well, a lobbyist is, uh, is any person really who um, wants something from someone. When we talk about political lobbying, we're obviously talking about someone wanting something from government. Uh, and that's really all a lobbyist is. Um, usually we'll reserve that word for professionals, though, um, people who do it on a full-time basis. And so in Australia we've got uh, registered lobbyists who kind of officially act on the behalf of a, a third party and also un- unregistered lobbyists. What's the, the difference in the activities they carry out, if there is one? Well, the difference is that registration, essentially. Um, you know, you've, those registered lobbyists you talk about... Uh, they're the full-timers, as a, as a general rule. But the sort of unregistered lobbyist, uh, in, in a sense, they shouldn't exist. But that's where you get back to the definition of a lobbying can just be anyone that wants anything. And... Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. The, the unregistered lobbyists... Uh, oh, sorry, you'll have to ask that question again. Is there a difference at all in the activities carried out by registered lobbyists as opposed to unregistered lobbyists? Or, or in essence, what they're doing is it pretty much the same it's pretty much the same (laughs) (laughs) and um i mean just how big a role do lobby groups play in australian politics because they're pretty vocal and there's some uh big names that we'd probably uh identify pretty easily um but others that kind of work below the surface do they uh, play a really large role in in major political parties and politicians deciding the agenda of the day they can. They can play a huge role, um, if, if only by virtue of the fact that we we have a system wherein in order to run a campaign, which we're in the middle of now, you have to have a lot of money. Mm. And that means you've got to get the money um, through primarily donations. We do have a system where you, you get some money per vote, essentially, and that sort of potentially democratises uh, the, the funding of campaigns a little bit. But the vast majority comes from those third parties. And third parties can essentially advertise on your behalf because advertising is so important and speak for you. You know, if we cast our mind back to, for instance, 2007, the unions were very active in supporting Labor mm. over the work choices issue. That The unions not only paid money to Labor, but they also then used their own resources beyond that to lobby for Labor publicly. Uh, and similarly, you get things like businesses doing the same thing. So it wasn't the election, but in 2010, the mining industry 
did the exact same thing. They not only paid a tremendous amount of money to the mainly Liberal Party, while simultaneously taking away the money that they were previously paying to the Labor Party, not taking it back, but stopping mm. future payments. But at the same time, they launched a campaign, the likes of which we've never seen before, um, which played a part in toppling a Prime Minister. Mm. Has it always been this way in Australia? Uh, no, it hasn't. It, it, it's been progressively getting, or, or rather lobbying has become increasingly pervasive, increasingly a part of our political scheme or system. It's always been there. Um, we've always had to deal with this issue of people wanting something from government. That's inevitable. I mean, that's part of democracy. So in that sense, lobbyists actually are inevitable. We have to have them. The question is, you know, how much of an impact do they play and how much of, I guess, a deleterious effect do they have on our dem democracy? That is to say, how much are the views of a very small few sort of overriding, actually, uh, the many? And a lot of scholars in the States in particular where lobbying is just you know, way ahead of us, some would say worse, mm. I'd say worse, um, they sort of are starting to question whether the United States is actually a democracy. And, and there are even studies that show that the views of American citizens are almost completely unreflected in at least the economic policy of the United States, which then allows them to say, well, this isn't a democracy anymore, it's a plutocracy. We're heading in that direction in Australia. We've been progressively heading in that direction where the views of the many are increasingly... In, especially in economic policy, not being given the same consideration as a very small few. And, and we've kind of seen um, a scandal of sorts play out with, I mean, the a ABC's Four Corners program um, a number of weeks ago uh, put to air an investigation around p particularly donations to the Liberal Party, which had been channeled through this kind of... Um, a different fund, I suppose, uh, and um, it was revealed that the uh, funding was being withheld from the Liberal Party because that was seen to be essentially illegal fundraising. At what point, um, and it was described in that program actually as almost a soft form of corruption, the way that political donations currently function. So at what point does it become democratic? How much is too much money that one can donate to a political campaign um, that it becomes un undemocratic? That's a good question. I mean, that's the fine line, isn't it? And, and of course, it's, a, it's an opinion. Uh, to give my opinion, we're, we're potentially crossing it. We've potentially crossed that line. Um, the role of money in politics is getting so important, or it's become so important, that is to say, you, if you want to launch a serious... Uh, candidacy, or you want to launch a serious platform as a party, especially if you're one of the two major parties, you need tremendous amounts of money. And most of that money comes from in the Labor's in, in, the, in the instance of Labor, the unions, or in the instance of the Liberals and the Coalition, or broadly uh, essentially businesses. The unions may sometimes give money thinking, okay, we don't want something in return. That's a bit utopian, but potentially that could happen if they sort of go, well, broadly, we just want workers' rights, whatever that is. But usually they'll want something too. Businesses, by their nature, have to want something. I mean, we actually have in Australia and in the West broadly uh, a fiduciary... There's, you know, there's a legal requirement on businesses. Uh, directors must act 
on the behalf of their shareholders and case law has established that that means you put profits first. So on that logic, if a business gives money, they want to get more money in return. They want to profit from it. And so they keep giving money and the coalition is expected to then return the favour. Um, unless we start to reduce that, unless we pull that back, things will just get worse and worse. We'll, we'll continue to go further and further towards the United States model. And the truth is almost no one seriously thinks the United States model works. It's, it's just there's, there's almost consensus. And the only people you will hear that say, yeah, it's a good thing, are representatives of business and some current members of Congress, for instance. Former members, just about all of them, say, yeah, it's terrible. It's a terrible system. Mm. Similar things again. Uh, sorry for constantly making these links, but it's kind of my thing. <laughs> um, again, we're heading in that direction and we're getting the same response from our politicians. They leave politics and they almost always say, yeah, it's not a good system. But there's an unwillingness to change it because the current politicians require this funding so much. We are speaking with uh, PhD candidate George Rennie all about the ins and outs of political lobbying, kind of stemming from an article he uh, wrote recently on the Conversation website. And you've kind of outlined, I suppose, the two broad groups that provide large amounts of funding to Labor and Liberal Party in terms of kind of the business sector on the side of the coalition, Liberal Party and the unions in terms of Labor. But if we just stick, I guess, with the two major parties for now, are either of them affected more than the other by lobby groups? Uh... I wouldn't say so. Um, the, the, it's very difficult for Labor to go against the unions. That's, that's, that's a very difficult thing. The, of course, the problem is that there are different unions with mm. different kind of wants and needs. So there's always this kind of uh, push and pull, give and take. But we're seeing, for instance, in Victoria with Daniel Andrews, this huge kerfuffle over, over the CFA union or the firefighters union and what's going on there, there's clearly something, you know, his hands are tied to some extent. He can't fight the union too much. And you get that, uh, you know, we've seen that with successive Labor governments. Equally, um, the ability of the, um, the Liberal Party in particular, but the coalition as well, to, to fight the unions is... is Oh, sorry, sorry, they'll fight the unions. Their ability to fight business is uh, pretty limited. They won't, you know, for instance, as one of many examples, at one point Malcolm Turnbull said, yeah, negative gearing is terrible and disaster right. and all this kind of stuff, you know, just this pretty clear message. And then he becomes the leader. A number of business groups, particularly property-related, say, we don't want you to get rid mm. of negative gearing, and the speed with which he backtracked was um, impressive to behold. And you see it's a criticism levelled against the, the um, coalition government with the mooted changes to superannuation as well. From The IPA has come out very strongly against that, for instance. Um, and I wonder about the, the ability of, of lobbyists to kind of um, threaten governments or even opposition of the day because we saw, uh, as you mentioned earlier, a massive campaign against the um, resource rent tax that was kind of 
um, I suppose, aimed at us as voters to, to um, you know, vote out the Labor government. Um, and with uh, the Labor Party um, talking about a potential Royal Commission into the banking sector, they've said, well, you know, if you do that, just be warned, we're going to launch a mining tax-style campaign. So how much does it influence um, government's likelihood of launching these sorts of large-scale investigations into uh, whether it be the unions, and that's, of course, attracted a lot of criticism from unions, uh, the Royal Commission that was launched by the current government, but also another type of Royal Commission against the banking sector. Is, is it likely that that would impact on the government's willingness to do so? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're talking about political pragmatic, uh, political pragmatism at work here. Um, if you're, say, Bill Shorten, uh, there's only so many things you can take on. You know, a lot of a lot of pundits have sort of looked at what the Shorten Labor Party has done and said it's quite brave. And in a way, it is. You know, they've put a number of targets out there. But that's a, that's a consequence of being so far behind in the polls that they sort of said, well, this is the best strategy we have, and they're kind of right. It's worked quite well for them to just make, to sort of say, we're the party of vision. But the more policies you offer the more targets you create. And especially given that it's the Labor Party and some of those policies will be, you know, pro-worker and some will be sort of potentially seen as anti-business, it means that they start to have to go, well, maybe we can't do this, maybe we can. You talk about the banks, for instance. Mm. That would have sent shivers down the spine of any Labor Party member of note, in particular Bill Shorten, who was right in the thick of it in 2010. Um... The mining tax, the Labor Party is still deathly afraid of mining tax-style campaigns mm. and the banking industry is one of the few that could could potentially pull it off. They have almost unlimited resources. Um, if you cast your mind back uh, to not long after the mining tax campaign, there was a, a short-lived campaign by the gaming industry, Clubs Australia, among others, sort of state and federal versions of that. And they ended up pulling the campaign but only after the Gillard government completely capitulated. And a big reason why the Gillard government capitulated was because they were afraid that they would lose, you know, be devastated, essentially, in the, in the coming election because of what they saw with the mining tax campaign. Well, I mean, we've touched on some of uh, the, the larger organisations and groups who lobby government with the threat of either large-scale advertising campaigns or withdrawing funds or providing, I suppose, greater funds to a particular political party. But what about smaller-scale lobbying? I mean, in the, the community radio sector currently, for example, we're lobbying with all other stations around the country for funding to be restored to the digital uh, the sector, which would ensure the future of um, community radio in at the very least five capital cities around Australia and we're obviously, you know, um, all operating off the smell of an oily rag, but are quite a, a vocal group. How effective can lobbying be when it doesn't necessarily come with a big paycheck? That's a really good question. Um, it can be very effective. I mean, you know, there's hope, right? Uh, but it's obviously much more difficult. It becomes particularly difficult if... Look, I mean, there's two, there's essentially two situations. One is you've got the groups that you describe, these smaller groups, they want something, it's kind of a pain for government, but they might go, well, you know, there's enough of a critical mass and we're getting a clear message and this will allow us to say we listen and so we'll act on it. That's option A. Option B is you've got the same scenario, except it's against a very powerful 
say, industry. Mm. And that industry might have a lot to lose or a lot to gain um, by the smaller groups not getting what they want. Um, that's where you tend to see the smaller groups getting crushed, just as a pretty good rule. Uh, so I guess I should ask you, are there any particularly well-vested <laughs> interests that are against you in this? Well, I mean, um, I mean, in our particular circumstance, it's a matter of um, $1.4 million being, um, you know, taken out of the funding that was uh, had previously been allocated to the sector. So it's a paltry amount of money, really. It's, it's nothing in the scheme of things. But, um, I mean, it has led through the campaign that we've been running with uh, other community stations, a keep community radio campaign. Um, I mean, Labor committed to restore the funding um, about a week or two ago. Uh, so there's hope that our, our message is, is being heard. But... Um, also, we're a lot of people with not much money and we're as vocal as we can be, um, but we're at the whim of, of governments. And there's, there's many other groups around the country who rely on quite small amounts of government funding and support for, for quite you know small things that they may do in the scheme of things, but is integral to their survival, such as in the arts sector, as, as we've seen recently as well. Yeah. I'm sorry for taking over your show there and asking no, questions. No, I like it. <laughs> but, um, I, 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 look, the biggest problem you face is generating that critical mass in a short period of time because things like funding, it can just be cut and then it's very hard to return. You might get it back, but then all the resources and infrastructure and That's jobs... Right, starting from scratch. They're gone. Yeah, exactly. So the industry's wiped out to, well, you know, to whatever extent. The tsunamis come through and then you have to rebuild. It's not ideal. Um, a lot of the examples of where lobbying from that very grassroots level have worked, unfortunately, where they want something and it takes years, often. So it's either you're able to get such a critical mass, like you know, you know, your listeners here today and the other listeners at other radio stations, uh, getting together and putting enough pressure on whomever in government uh, and then government going, OK, there's enough of political... There's enough political interest in this that we don't want to rock the boat. Uh, or you can get a champion, so to speak, in government, someone who really values the work that you do. Uh, or you just get lucky or you're stuffed. The alternative. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and um, I'm optimistic that won't happen. Yeah, um, I, hope, I hope so. <laughs> and, um, I mean, just, just to finish, I mean, what, what can we do? Because they're pretty significant problems we have, I guess, with democracy in this country when uh, lobby groups spending such large sums of money really have the ear of, of politicians. What sorts of things can we institute to kind of um, oversee this or, or regulate it better than we currently do? Yeah, another... It's a good question. Um, it, 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 look, there are two options. One is you remove the incentive to sort of for that conflict of interest. You remove the sort of areas where you can have a conflict of interest. So you sort of take away the ability to, say, donate and you shift to an entirely sort of um, essentially state-funded election system. Um, in the UK, for instance, they ban political advertisements on broadcast media. Uh, and that actually means that there's less of a need to get the funds for the big campaigns. We could do something like that. So there's a whole range of things you can do to take away the incentive uh, for pollies to become essentially beholden. On the other hand, you need police force. Uh, and a police force, you know, essentially like ICAC in mm. New South Wales. You know, you, you, you referred to ICAC before. The, fe the instance of the federal... Of, of, of the federal Liberal Party not receiving funds was ICAC, That's not right. the federal equivalent. Mm. And... Uh, and so, you know, 
we see all these problems occurring in New South Wales and we're even seeing how they're occurring at a national level. If we had a police force, if we had essentially a federal corruption watchdog, you watch how quickly we start seeing scandal after scandal and that has to have an impact on the corrupt practices within lobbying. Positive impact, I hope. Well, we can only hope. Yeah. <laughs> Let's wait and see. Um, George Rennie is my guest, talking all about the ins and outs of political lobbying and, I guess, implications for our democracy. Uh, thanks so much for stopping by Triple R. It's great. It's great to, uh, thank you. And I'm um, very uh, pleased to have four members of Siggy Witch here in the studio. Uh, we've got Mitch, Ashley, Zach and Snowy. Welcome to Triple R. Thanks, um, and I really wanted to, to play that track. I know it's not from your um, your brand new album that's set to be launched tonight, but it is called Long Weekend and seemed to be fitting for today. How's your weekend been? Been good. Um, we were on a bit of a tour on Thursday and Friday, went up to Canberra on Thursday and then Sydney on Friday, so it was a bit of fun. Drive back was a bit of a drainer, but we made it. What was the weather like on the drive back? A bit of everything, really. Um, It was freezing in Canberra, and then Sydney was its beautiful, mild self. Uh, (laughs) But, yeah, a bit of rain, a bit of sun on the way home. Um, And so any kind of inspiration for other songs that came out of this particular long weekend? Any kicking of the footy and drinking beers? We did a particularly gruelling drive back from Sydney. We had a wedding to get to on, um, on Saturday, Arvo, so we played at the Union in Sydney and then pretty much hit the road straight away and did a bit of a, like, sleep and driving, um, you know... Um, tandem. Tandem thing, yeah. <laughs> um, and we made it, but it was, like, it was... It, it, it you know, could be inspiration for, a, for I don't know, something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you made it here, so I'm pretty happy with that. <laughs> um, and so, see, I mean, a number of you play in, in different bands. Um, Zach, of course, with The Ocean Party and Ash with Totally Mild. Um, how did Siggy Witch come about? It's just after Zach moved down here from Wagga. Um, you had some songs written up, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I... I moved to Melbourne and uh, just had some songs that I didn't think were good enough for Ocean Party. <laughs> <laughs> recorded an EP. Then it's kept going. It's a good way to go about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I really, one of my favourite tracks on the album is um, is Latest Fashion. And was that written by you? Yeah, that? that's that's my song. And so that's um, that's a closer to um, to this album and. Um, it's, it's got a, a number of sort of great lines, um, like everyone ages so much quicker in the country, and it's kind of about, I guess, um, to my reading at least, of, I guess not really fitting in, in in country towns. What was it like being in, in Wagga and then coming to Melbourne? How, how different was that? Uh, I think it was a good thing when I got here. It was a good match for me. Uh, I think that song is about going back there and uh, meeting up with all my old friends and... I know they were at a point where it seemed like they were ready to have kids, even though I need saw them, and even though I'd only been out of Wagga for a year. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you, uh, Mitch, and Zach kind of share um, songwriting duties, and I think the the album's almost. Um, the, the track list is almost kind of alternating between the two of you. I think might not be the whole way through, but that's the way it kind of felt to me. How do you um, collaborate with, with each of your songs? Do you kind of bring them to the group and then work them up, or how does that process yeah, work? Yeah, so pretty much, like, if Zach sings a song or if I sing a song, 
we would have written the rhythm guitar part for that and then everyone else writes their own parts um, there's a couple songs that Lockie, our drummer, sings as well on the album um, where he's written a guitar part or a keyboard line that, you know, uh, whoever will play and then, again, everyone else just writes their own parts um, so yeah, it's not the kind of thing where you come with a, a whole built song and then everyone just learns them mm. it's very much a group writing process I really like... Um each, each of your styles, it's kind of really familiar and, um, you know, you name check some, some places around Melbourne, the Sandy Train, for example. <laughs> um, I sort of grew up down that area, so I'm familiar with it. Um, and as I mentioned before, and um, talking about sort of Edinburgh Gardens and that sort of thing, um, w- what does the role of, of place play in your songs? Do you feel like it really kind of emanates from Melbourne? Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, that song in particular, the Sandy Train... Um, like I wrote that obviously during summer where like that's where I'd spend a lot of my time catching the train down to you know Half Moon Bay or something like that um, and my dad was giving me hell for not having any happy songs so I wrote that one because that's my happy <laughs> place you know <laughs> um I really, um, when I was checking you guys out on, on social media, I, um, I clicked on your about page on Facebook and <laughs> I was like, I wonder how, how they think they, they sound and how they describe themselves. And um, it's just got the one line, classic Melbourne bullshit, never climaxes. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's really funny and it, I guess it kind of encapsulates your kind of laconic style, but you're also dealing with, um, you know, like quite serious themes, as in your case, um, Zach, you know, going back to a country town and feeling like things are a little bit different there <clears> and you don't quite fit in. How do you you kind of balance that um i guess kind of laconic jokey side to music but also um making really great songs and and workshopping them Me? <laughs> um yeah i don't know i guess like um a kind of songwriting style that i always liked is when you have a kind of disarming lyric mm. um and then you follow that up with a kind of um yeah pretty incisive kind of thing um because you know the disarming thing in uh you know lets the listener in um makes them feel like they're a part of uh the situation that you're writing about and then you can kind of you know hit them with the dnm mitch has a really good line in the song sandy train that start of the verse is i'd be profound if i weren't so profane (laughs) and then a couple of lines later he says something all fucking day. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, the humour of that is a cool way to, I don't know, to, I don't know, deal with this shit. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, do you really like Air Supply? Uh, I've never really listened to Air Supply. <laughs> I asked that because that, I saw that listed on your Facebook page as well as your influences. Really? Is that you? Uh, is that you, Snakes? It's definitely not me. <laughs> right. Let me double check that. Sure. <laughs> I think that's what I was like, maybe there's a story there. Yeah. Well, none of us actually have Facebook, so... Oh, sure. <laughs> there's, only, there's only two of us left in Snowy and Lachlan, so... All right. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we'll investigate. Yeah, you could be doing anything on that. <laughs> <laughs> so what's um, in store for, for Siggy Witch after you've launched the album? Have you got sort of a, another sort of tour in the works, or...? Um, well, after tonight, we're going to Adelaide and then Ballarat uh, on Thursday and Friday. Um, but nothing really planned other than that. 
I guess start writing a third one. Yeah, <laughs> get straight into the next project. Yeah, and um, and how can people get a get a copy of your album? You've got you've got hard copies as well as, of course, digital by the usual um, channels. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's the South through Lost and Lonesome. Um, so they've got got it up on their Bandcamp. We have got records and CDs as well. Um, easiest thing to do would be to come down to the show tonight and <laughs> grab one, say hi to one of us. And chat about air supply. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, well, thanks uh, so much for coming in and, um, and hope the gig goes well today and uh, look forward to hearing more of what you've got in store. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.